following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I imagine that most of us have heard the proverb, a little saying, don't judge a book by its cover. It's dangerous at times to judge a book by its cover. Now, you know, really good books ought to have good covers, but there was a time in England when they uh, printed the Penny Classics, and they were trying to get the classic literature uh, accessible to the common person, and so they would print these very inexpensive editions of classical literature. You couldn't judge what was inside that book by its cover. Uh, there was a publisher years ago when I was in seminary and first in the ministry named Jay Green, and he was probably the first person to begin to republish Puritan books. Uh, but they are in this awful green color. And what's inside merits much more. I have his uh, commentary, Owen's commentary on Hebrews. And, you know, you don't judge that book by its uh, terrible green cover. Of course, we're not really talking about books when we use that proverb, don't judge a book by its cover. We're talking about jumping to hasty conclusions about other people. And we do that, don't we? Something a person says or does. Sometimes it's even the way they appear, and we immediately jump to negative conclusions about that people. Or it might be uh, that we can be uh, fooled and we will jump to very good conclusions about a person or really is not that good. Now, you know, we enjoy doing that, particularly the negative conclusions. We, we look at those who are having difficulties in their life and we jump to the conclusion, well, they really must be bad. So you look at a, a minister in his church and it's not doing well. And what, what, what do we think? Well, it, it must be his fault. Some, something in his life or something in his ministry. Or we look at a, at a family and one or two of their children have apostatized and turned away from the covenant. And our hasty judgment is they must not have reared those children properly. You see, we do that. We, we jump to hasty conclusions on the basis of appearances. And I trust you see the parallel. That's exactly what Job's three friends have been doing throughout this book. And it's what um, Job is pushing back against more and more because, as you know, they've jumped to the conclusion nobody could be suffering the way he is suffering and not be a terrible, arrogant sinner and hypocrite. And Job's crying out, I'm not. I don't understand why God is doing this, but I know I am not being judged. And sometimes Job would even speak in a way that perhaps would disparage God's judgment, but he comes more and more to balance, as he does in this particular speech. We noticed last week that after his confession about the, the risen Christ and some final vindication, that Job's feet are, are on firmer ground. His, his responses are, are more um, rational and, and, and deliberate and instructive. Now, in chapter 21, he began, as we saw last week, responding to uh, the um, diatribe by Zophar, who says that, uh, yes, well, Job, we can't prove you wrong here. The wicked at times prosper in this life, but it is always short-lived. God's always going to deal with them, implied, 
as he is dealing with you. What Job does there in response to that is assert two realities. You remember from last week. The first reality is God afflicts the righteous in severe ways. And the second reality is God blesses the wicked materially and they actually can die good and comfortable deaths. Now his response to that, even there, is I'm not, I'm not envying the wicked. I can assert these two principles, that God severely afflicts the righteous, and God marvelously, in a material way, blesses the wicked, but I will not be envious. Because after all, as it says, the way is not in their hand. It is God who gives to each man that which he apportions out. He'll come back to that even clearer in our text today. So Job is continuing now to, to respond to Zophar's uh, speech uh, uh, by simply uh, saying that you've got to have some balance in your assessment. That you must have balance in assessing uh, the circumstances and deaths of the righteous and the wicked because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We may not dictate to him. And thus Job says we must exercise a balance. Now, here is, though, where he also, as he calls for balance, is asserting the fact that he longs for God's judgment. He's not denying the fact that at some point the wicked will be judged. And actually, in two weeks, we'll see where he actually begins to speak of a, of a divine retribution after death. He hints at that in today's text. So we're going to consider two things this morning from these few verses. In the first place, we're going to look at the affirmation of judgment and then the sovereignty of judgment. The affirmation of judgment is made in verses 17 through 21. In verses 17 and 18, Job responds directly to Zophar's claim uh, that the wicked always punish, are punished in his life with a series of rhetorical questions. Now, in the New American Standard, it begins with how often. And you could repeat that word um, with each question. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their calamity fall on them? How often does God apportion destruction as anger? How often are they a straw before wind and chaff which the storm drives away? Bildad and Zophar have said that uh, as the case is, God is always going to put the lamp of the wicked out. The lamp is the, the mark of God's presence and, and kindness and joy and, and blessing in the home, uh, in their tent. And that's what they've asserted. And Job says, how often? And as a figure, you could actually say, he asserts then with this rhetorical question, rarely. Look around you. Rarely does God put out the lamp of the wicked. How often does their calamity fall on them? They said it always falls on them in this life. But Job says, really, rarely. You look at the great multitude of wicked men. How has calamity fallen on the Sabians and the Chaldeans who uh, murdered and, and stole uh, Job's uh, livestock? How often does God apportion destruction in his anger? They said he'll always come in anger. He'll always destroy in this life the wicked. And Job says it's rarely. How often do we really see that? How often do we experience that? You remember Job also lived in the days of, of diminishing piety. That uh, as the population grew after the Tower of Babel, and evil was spreading around the earth, not just in a little simple area uh, where these men lived, or in Canaan, where the patriarchs had lived, who were probably now in Egypt. 
How often? How often? How often? Or are they as straw or like straw before the wind and like chaff which the storm carries away? Now, now we know, and, and David tells us in Psalm 1 that the wicked are driven away like chaff. And, but also the psalmist prays for a judgment against them that they'll be driven away like straw and, and like chaff. And we know that on the day of judgment that they will not stand. They'll be driven away like straw and chaff. But how often or rarely are their lives that way now? So with these series of questions, he's simply saying, stop and consider. Look around you. Is this not our experience today? I mean, really? The day of evil uh, that surrounds us uh, in, in our own country and around the world. Uh, in fact, we should be mourning the fact that we're not seeing great um, manifestations of God's judgment on the wicked. Uh, they seem to act with impunity. Part of our balance, then, is to realize that uh, we must not judge the book by its cover. We must remain balanced in our assessment of what happens to people, but we must not despair. So Job goes on, after asking these, uh, these questions, actually to assert, to affirm, judgment is coming. He's not a cynic, you see. So um, he anticipates in the first half of verse 19 an objection now that uh, perhaps his friends might bring. Uh, you see, you see that you say <laughs> is in italics. That means it's been supplied by the translators in the ESV and the New American Standard, I think the New King James. And it's the proper way to understand this. The King James takes a completely different twist on this, but I think this is the proper way. So you, you friends, are saying, well, okay, but God stores away a man's iniquity for his sons. What impiety. Is this not what the children of Israel did when they said to God, and quoted in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the fathers ate sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. So the fathers, well, maybe they do escape judgment, but God is going to come back now and judge their children for their sins. Now, that's wicked. And God tells us in the law that God, he never judges a son or a daughter for the sins of their father. He's not going to punish a child. Now, there can be consequences. Beethoven was deaf because of the sinful lifestyle of his father. God wasn't judging Beethoven for particular sins at that point. It was something that happened in God's overall judgment. Now, God does not punish children for the sins of their father. But then what does it mean in Exodus 20 when he warns us about hating him if we don't worship him according to his word and if we make images of him that we are those who hate him and he will judge us under the third and fourth generation. It's very sobering. He's not saying that he's going to judge your children simply for your sins. He's saying he's going to give your children over to your sins. You see the difference. A sovereign and righteous judge will exercise judgment in a family by giving uh, sons and grandsons, even great-grandchildren, over to the sins of their forebears and judge them then in their sin. In fact, it can get worse in every generation. As, as the departure um, begins 
It simply becomes deep and, and, and more profound and, and more corrupt. And that's very sobering. You should look at your own lifestyle, fathers and mothers. You look at patterns in your family. You need to understand that if you are deliberately in some place breaking the law of God, that one of the things that God will justly do is give your children over to those same sinful practices through multiple generations. But we can't stop with that. Because on to say, he shows loving kindness to thousands of generations. Our God loves to show mercy and salvation and loving kindness. And many of us here today are testimonies of the fact that he broke the chain. He took us out of the wickedness has shown grace to us, has established us in the way that we and our children now may walk with him. So it's a, it's a serious thing. And yet for us, there's great hope in the mercy of the triune God. And so it's a very wicked thing for them to say, well, maybe he's not going to punish them, but he'll punish their children in their case. And that answering that leads Job now to affirm God's judgment. You notice that now... Instead of questions, we have some commandments. Let God repay him so that he may know it. Let his own eyes see his decay. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care for his household after him when the number of his months is cut off? Now Job lets us know that even though he has to say that in this life the wicked are often not punished. He longs for the exercise of God's judgment on the wicked. And he's not being a cynic. He knows it's going to come. Maybe not in this life, but worse yet, after this life. And so with a series of commandments, he's saying, let God now act. And if he's not going to act in this life, if he's not going to repay a man in this life, um, well, then, let this person drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Now, this is a figure in the Bible for not just temporal, but particularly for eternal judgment. It's used in Psalm eleven six: Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone. Burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And that's applied then uh, in Revelation fourteen ten Of the wicked, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. You see, I think that Job is anticipating here what he will affirm in this next paragraph. And that is, God, the Almighty One, Shaddai, is going to judge the wicked. If not now in this life, he will judge them and they will care for nothing they've left behind. And notice the shortness of their life. For what does he care for his household after him? <laughs> He'll have no thought for them when the number of his months is cut off. Notice he doesn't say years, but months. Reminding us of the shortness of life of all men. The shortness of life of the wicked. A judgment is coming. And God wants you to know that. As you look around today, as you're seeing... Uh, Rampant evil increasing in the world, and you're tempted to say, where's God? Listen, judgment is coming. 
As we read in 2 Peter, God acts, and we'll come to this more in his sovereignty, by a special timetable that belongs to him alone. But he's perfect in righteousness and justice. And so we know, we know that he is going to right the ship at some point, and many points throughout the history, as he has in the history of his church. We also see here that it's not wrong to long for that judgment to be exercised. Now, we have to walk a a balance beam here. The scripture warns us not to gloat over uh, the terrible things that happen to people. But on the other hand, we are taught to pray in precatory psalms. Not because somebody has injured us, but because they've acted against God, against the innocent, against the church. And we pray, and I want you to pray these things. We pray them in the prayer meeting. I want you to pray them in private. I want you to to keep this balance that, Lord, if you're not going to convert them, destroy them. Destroy them now. Make it obvious to people throughout the world that you are the God of all justice. You will not allow uh, uh, Jun Won Kim in North Korea to continue to to oppress your people and lock them way away from multiple generations. Concentration camps are chi to persecute the church in China and around the world, the tyrants today, one after another, like peacocks walking around, oppressing the church of God, his bride. Oh, Lord, come forth and judge them. We won't gloat over their judgment, but we will recognize the sovereign hand of God. And you see how that's different from saying, well, everybody that, you know, God was just judging Rolling Fork, Mississippi, and everybody there must be wicked. No, those broad acts of judgment Christ teaches us, we're to apply to ourselves. We're to repent. We're to be sure we're walking with the Lord. But when he works in singular ways to judge a wicked people or a wicked oppressor, then we may praise him, as we will as mysterious as it is, in hell, when we really understand the depth of sin, praise God for eternal judgment. But when you think about this cup of wrath that the wicked drinks, you understand, I trust you remember right now, that the Savior drank the cup for you, right down to the very bottom And today as we come to the Lord's table and we have this cup of blessing which he blesses, it is to remind us that our Savior was in our place and the cup was put in his hand as he hanged on the cross at Calvary. He drank the full wrath and judgment of God so that we will be spared forevermore. So Job teaches us here how to a firm judgment, even in the midst of a world where we're not seeing it. But this leads then to the discussion of the sovereignty of judgment. And that's the second half of this paragraph. He asserts the sovereignty of God, having a firm judgment, the sovereignty of God in verse 22, with his most wonderful question. I love Job's questions. All right, can anyone teach God knowledge and that he judges those on high? What a glorious statement about the sovereignty of God and his perfect wisdom. Is anyone, are all people in any position to 
and be teachers of God. Why, in fact, he judges the angels. Um, he judges the highest and purest creatures. And they, uh, the book says, are not even pure in the sight of God. And who are we to think then that we can teach God? That theme is repeated. Um, glorious introduction to the second half of Isaiah as Isaiah is declaring actually the deliverance of the people from captivity and the work of the sovereign Savior. He says there, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? You boys and girls know the answer to that question? Huh? Who taught God? Who taught God? Who taught God? No one. No one. And so Paul concludes his great discussion of the sovereignty of God and salvation in Romans 11. Oh, the depth, uh, the riches and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, as Job asks this question, once again, he's calling for balance. He's saying we're wrong. We're taking God's place when we jump to these conclusions because this man is blessed, he's righteous, and because this woman is afflicted, she's wicked. He says you're making yourself a teacher of God. And you try to call him to an accounting for the administration of his acts in this life. And we need to be mindful of that in a broader way. As we, a few months ago, discussed the, the uh, Christian contentment, and now we're looking at God's providence. And you realize that uh, when you complain about an event in your life, what you're really doing? You're instructing God, aren't you? You're complaining, you're saying, well, this really shouldn't be happening to me, God. You need to get this straight. Let us be so mindful and humbled under this question. He's God. No creature in all of the creation has any right or ability to attempt to teach God. He's sovereign in his wisdom. Now, Job illustrates this sovereignty with the tale of two people. A tale of the prosperous person who dies and the tale of the poor, bitter person who dies. He speaks of the prosperous person in verses 22 and 23. One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and satisfied. His sides are filled out with fat. Literally, his pails are filled with fat. And this idea of a, of a pail, uh, maybe a milk pail being full of, of milk and, and fat or butter. And the marrow of his bones is moist, which is an Old Testament way of speaking of, of strength and vigor. So uh, here is the tale of one man. He is living a great life. He's strong. He's at ease. He's satisfied. And he dies a peaceful death at the end of his days, fat and happy. Does that mean he's righteous? Well, here is another tale of one who dies with a, a bitter soul, 
never even tasting anything good. A bitter soul. Mara returns to Bethlehem. Don't call me Mara pleasant. Call me, I know me pleasant. Call me Mara bitterness. So I, I am the embodiment of bitterness. And that's, that's this word here. Uh, this person who's had an entire life of bitter. You think that's not possible? Have you ever read of the concentration camps in North Korea? Uh, families are born there. Uh, children are born in those camps. That's all they have ever known in all their lives. Or look at the pictures of the refugee camps, say, in the Sudan, with malnourished children lying uh, on the ground with distended stomachs. They will die having only known bitterness. Now, what he's saying is, is that this is by God's appointment. It's by God's appointment that some live rich and full lives and die fat and happy. And as difficult as it is, it is by God's sovereign wisdom, loving kindness, that some will live lives of bitterness. But the end of the day, death is the great equalizer. So regardless, he says, of their manner of life or death, together they lie down in the dust and worms cover them. Everyone, regardless of his life, will die. Everyone's body is going to turn to dust and ashes and be eaten by worms. Of course, Isaiah picks up on this image when he speaks of, of the worms that um, eat and eat for all eternity. You, you see, he's saying that regardless, in God's sovereignty, how he deals with the person, he's bringing everyone to this point of death. And in fact, their wealth and prosperity or their bitterness is not going to make an iota of difference when they die. So think of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lived a full life and died fat and happy. Was he a godly man? Was that the guarantee of his entrance into heaven? No. He was wicked. And his pain in hell was all more intensified by his wickedness and his lack of mercy. But poor Lazarus had a bitter life. Did his bitter life get him into heaven? No. I had a relative who said, I've had all my pain in this life. I've paid my hell. No, that's not so. That's not so. It was not his bitter life that got him into heaven, was it? It was the grace of a saving God. And that's where we come uh, in God's sovereignty. We, we, we must beware of the reality of death for all of us, regardless of sick or healthy or mighty or poor. I want you young people to think about the reality of death. A number of years ago, I read an article about a little girl in Niger, Africa, named Awanu Amaki. Awanu Amaki wrote in her diary, I just don't need to take time now to try to figure out life's puzzles. And then she said, she was almost 12 years old, I still got like 70 or 80 years left. A year later, one day after her 13th birthday, Awanu Amaki died in a plane crash. Did she have 70 or 80 years? 
She had a little over one year. You have no guarantee, my young friends, that you'll live a day longer, a year longer. And so when the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart under the preaching of the word and, and the counsel of your parents and is encouraging you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, don't say, I can do that later. You have no guarantee of later. Today is the day we want every one of you to rest in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. And you be sure. And if you're not sure today, you go home and you talk to mommy and daddy. Because I want to know for sure that I'm trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior. But of course, that's true for all of us, isn't it? This certainty of death, regardless of what you experience in this life, it's appointed that a man wants to die, will be covered, turned to dust, eaten by worms. It's very important then as believers that we die well. And to die well, William Perkins says, you must live well. If you live well, then you will die well. You'll not die in terror and trepidation. You can die with a good conscience because you're resting in Christ. You're seeking by God's grace to live in Christ, to keep a good conscience, to serve God and to serve your fellow. That's how you will die well. May God grant that we die well. So, the need for balance. Don't jump to conclusions. Be balanced in your judgments about a person's life or death because God is sovereign in administration of those things. Don't then jump to hasty conclusions about others. And don't jump to hasty conclusions about yourself or fret about what others might even say. Don't look on the appearance outwardly as God taught Samuel when David's sons paraded before him. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. May your hearts be right before him. And as you get to know one another, know the heart person, not the outside person. Don't make judgments on that basis. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of a man's heart. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. Not from us. It's not our duty. And guard your own heart then, because you too will be slandered and lied about and insulted. And to a degree you must defend yourself, but at the end of the day you must simply say, I leave this, I leave my life I leave my reputation in the hands of the Lord. Now, he's a faithful God. And so as we come to the table, we're going to be reminded that not only did Christ drink the cup for us, but our God is a faithful God. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. Let us pray. Oh, Holy One, we thank you for uh, this uh, record of, of the certainty of judgment, the sovereignty of judgment. The balance, Lord, of life in which we don't look at outward appearances of men and women, but we look to judge with a holy judgment by their behavior and by their words. We pray, Lord, that this day you would exonerate your church and that you will judge the wicked as you will have promised to do. But if you tarry, then 
Give us patience, Lord, to wait on you and to know that you will act in the appropriate and due time. Grant that all of our children this day will not put off the most important thing about life, but each one would be sure that he or she is trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.